0: Well, it's that time again for us to grab our Bibles and uh, rally around the truth of God's Word and dig in for uh, the Holy Spirit to give us a greater insight into the way that we walk, the way that we follow our Lord. Uh, We are in Hebrews chapter 11, so if you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 11 and be ready, you might want to have your finger at Exodus 14 as well, which is the really the Old Testament context that the writer has in mind here, you can do that. As you're turning, let me just uh, say a few words to kind of set the stage. If we polled our church today and asked, what is the most difficult part of life that you've been faced with to date, the most difficult? I I wonder how many of you would say the same thing. Now, why would any of us say the same thing? Some of you are saying that just doesn't make sense. In the first place, some of us have endured difficulties in life that others of us have not, and that's true. In the second place, even among our shared difficulties, pandemic, a virus, the threat of not being vaccinated, the threat of being vaccinated, the deception from our government, and on and on and on, what's difficult for one person may not be for another, no, it's more likely that we would get a wide variety of responses to that poll. If, and if that's your opinion, then I want to challenge your thinking with this. I think that the most difficult experience that we Christians face is living the redeemed life in a fallen world. It is living the redeemed life in a fallen world. Now, don't misunderstand. What keeps us sane through any difficulty, difficult event in our lives is of course the fact that we have a relationship with Christ, that God is in control, that he uses difficulties for our good, that difficult spells are platforms for us to mature and also to minister, and that each event is only one in a great series, both good and bad, that will lead us eventually to glory. I understand that. That's Why, we can say that it is better to endure the trial of life as a Christian than as a non-Christian. We have a certainty, we have a hope that they don't have. Trials only lessen the quality of life for people in the world, but for us, for those of us who are Christians, it builds our character and it brings us closer to the Lord. Now, having said all that, though, maintaining a level of sanity and even Joy, through tough times, doesn't make the pain from them any less real or severe. When Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, he didn't mean that Christ's love would necessarily keep us from suffering, tribulation or trouble, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. No, God may even use them to bring us home if he should decide add to that God's will for us to endure trials, albeit only ones that we can bear, whether it feels like we can or not. Or maybe he gives us a physical handicap that limits us in some way and makes us feel less than our best. But Job's suffering was good for him, right? And Paul's God-given thorn kept him from boasting and magnified God's power in his life. The psalmist. Testified, It is good for me that I was afflicted, so that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119. Jesus once said, Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. The implication is that true prophets who take God's way will not be so well treated because they speak God's truth and they annoy everyone. I want to challenge you this morning to think about how difficult God's way is for his elect and how necessary it is to live it by faith. That is the main idea of our passage this morning, Hebrews 11. We're in verse 29, and I'll say it this way. Faith perseveres in God's way, no matter how impossible it may seem to us. Here's verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though dry land as through dry land and the Egyptians when they attempted it were drowned. Now we all know the incident that the writer is referring to here God parts the sea so that the Israelites could pass through on dry ground and escape the pursuing Egyptians who made didn't make it through they actually drowned the Egyptians. Now there can be no question that anyone who has led to a major body of water like this that God parts miraculously, would have found the command to walk through it daunting, even paralyzing, paralyzingly fearful. Well, the sights, the, the sounds, just the miracle itself, all of it was probably more terrifying to the Israelites than falling prey to the Egyptians. But we can relate, I think, to paralyzing fear on a much smaller scale, because we've all been fearful of activity that seemed to us to be high risk, even though it was factually safe. An aquaphobic will not get into a boat for fear of, for fear of it sinking, even though the boat is seaworthy. A claustrophobic will not climb into tight spaces for fear of being crushed, even though the spaces they fear Are well fortified. The Israelites who exited Egypt faced God's way, which was through the sea. It was out of the ordinary. It was highly risky. But as risky as it must have seemed to them, it was a risk worth taking because they were counting on God's promises to deliver them to a better country. That was the faith. Such faith allowed them to proceed. They trusted in the Lord's promises of future blessing, and especially the one that he was about to make them in the next few moments. You will walk through on the other side on dry ground. Now, a word of clarification here is necessary, I think, at this point, since the Exodus account gives us no record of a confident, trusting people, if you remember. Quite the contrary, once they arrived at the edge of the sea with nowhere to go, they revealed their true rebellious colors, didn't they? Exodus 14, it says, they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you, would, that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And by the way, after they passed through the sea with not so much as a drop on them, their confidence in God would turn to doubt and they would rebel again a couple of weeks later. And this time, God sentenced them to wander the desert until they died, everyone 20 years and older. Far from being sterling examples of faithful spiritual warriors, there's every indication from the text that they were characterized by doubt, depravity, and they did not live by faith in God's promise of future blessing. So what's Hebrews 11.29 referring to? Well, I want you to observe in the first place that Moses was, as we've argued for a while now, certainly a genuine believer in Messiah. As representative of the nation, he led them by faith through the sea. In Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, we have his encouraging words to them recorded. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will perform for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them ever again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Well, that's all well and good, but the writer does say they, not he. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the writer, assures us that others also pass through by faith. They pass through the sea. Obviously, then there was a remnant. They constituted the true Israel, as Paul would later confirm in his book to the Romans. It included, at the very least, Moses and his family, Moses' brother Aaron and his family, Caleb and Joshua and their families. It included these, at least, and they were doubtless others, God saved a remnant. The majority of unbelieving Israelites happen to have benefited from the obedience of true believers among them as they followed them through the sea. But let's stay focused on the truth of verse 29, that God's way is daunting, difficult, out of the ordinary, at times seemingly impossible to us, and has to be lived by faith. That is the thrust of verse 29. I want to say God's way taxes us physically and mentally more than any other way because it is God's way and therefore the best way and the only way for his people to go. And the key to enduring his way is to walk it by faith in the covenant promises that he makes. The writer emphasizes that clearly by contrasting faithful-believing Israelite with the Egyptians, the latter had no faith in God's way, and therefore they found it quite intolerable. Even lethal in their particular situation, they died. Endure it by faith, and you produce a harvest of righteousness. This truth, I think, is a timely one. Because God's way is not the popular way to go for many Christians in America. I want you to listen very carefully to what I have to say. Most of them see God's way very differently. More of a walk in the park, I think. They neither know it nor think of it as demanding or taxing or fraught with dangers and requiring them to expend a good deal of energy, of their energy, and to be on constant red alert, that doesn't seem like the faith to them. Well, that's because they've adopted a path of least resistance as their preferred way to go in life. And they believe that way to be God's way. What that way amounts to for Christians is this, compromising God's truth to avoid resistance, changing your theology to, adjust, uh, to justify an ungodly course of action, not confronting sin or exposing error to avoid a fight, divorcing for unbiblical reasons, being a parent that is too permissive or too heavy-handed, welcoming ecumenism, letting the sun go go down on your anger, adopting worldly wisdom, not renewing your mind with scripture, becoming woke, watering down the gospel, Frankly, I'm embarrassed for the church in America for this outlook that it passes off as loving and caring and compassionate. It's really the path of least resistance. What's more embarrassing, though, is that even the world knows that anything worth doing often demands taking the more difficult path, right? There are parents in the world who willingly endure the pain associated with child-rearing, with the goal of raising well-adjusted kids. There are those who slog through double shifts at work for months on end with little sleep and no social life just to be debt-free. And we all know, don't we, that the harder we work to save up for a holiday makes the hard working more bearable and the holiday more enjoyable. Certainly, compromising Christians cannot deny what I'm saying, but they refuse to see it working out in the redeemed life. There's a disconnect. And I firmly believe that the major reason they don't see it that way, that they don't see that the Christian life is that way, is because they live it without faith in God's promises of future blessing. This is what chapter 11 is all about. They're too earth-bound. They don't live with one eye on their calling and the other on the better country. With any thought of investing in the kingdom, with a thought of gouging out their right eye or cutting off their right arm, that they might, not go, that they might go to heaven maimed rather than to hell whole, they have no grasp of the eternal life. No, they, they have turned God's way into their way, which is the way of leisure. And they will tell you that the Christian life is much easier to live than the secular way. God gives me what I want when I ask him in Jesus' name. He will not let anything happen to me. He blesses me with the American dream, whatever that is now. Compromised Christian will boast that he is in God's way because, well, church is part of his life. And God gives him friends for moral support, makes him feel good about himself, and meets all his felt needs. Basically, he sees God's way as a means of enhancing the quality of his life on earth. And that view, beloved, is one of Satan's most well-worn lies that only weakens God's army. If this portrait of Christianity were true, Why would Jesus ever have warned his disciple wannabes that they had better count the cost before they follow him? Why would he warn them, foxes have holes, the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Why would he give as a condition to be a worthy disciple that one must love him more than one's own immediate family and be prepared to die for him. Choosing Jesus above family is going to wreak havoc in your life. And preparing to live for Jesus, even if it kills you, doesn't sound very pleasant. This is not the path of least resistance by any stretch. So what makes God's way so hard that it calls for perseverance by faith? Well, for one thing, God's way attracts persecution. You need to know that. It is the main reason that we endure suffering and persecution and temptation and death threats that we've all seen so far in Hebrews 11. And if it weren't for a safe relationship with God, well, Moses would have continued to enjoy the pleasantries of Egypt. Abraham would have stayed in Ur, and Noah would never have taken up the risky business of evangelizing a rebellious nation or generation. And for another thing, God's way is by nature burdensome. Hmm, never heard that one before. Now there's a statement that's a hard sell to the compromised modern church, Everyone there knows of Jesus' invitation of Matthew 11, to the weary and heavy laden, to come to him for rest. Any burden associated with Jesus, we all know, is light. It's the path of least resistance. But what they seem to miss is that Jesus is talking about the way to be saved, not the way of the saved. It's a huge difference rest in Jesus' invitation is a figure for salvation. And he addresses the impossibility that anyone could attain it and escape God's wrath by his own religiosity. That's what Jesus is talking about. No one can ever appease God by what he does. No amount of charity or philanthropy and certainly no religious rituals or practices can ever win God's favor. No matter how many times you genuflect at a pew, cross yourself, or go to confession, none of that is what saves an individual. The prophet was quite clear that God considers all men's religious righteousness works to be filthy in his sight. You cannot be born into God's kingdom. You can't earn your way there. Cannot buy your way in or bargain for heaven. No. God's standard is perfection, absolute holiness, and anyone who is morally imperfect will and must face God's judgment. Every person falls into this category, since every person is born with a sin nature. This is why we need Christ. This is the gospel. It says that any sinner can come to God on the merits of Christ's work alone and find God's acceptance. Admission of sin and guilt, acknowledgement that we do indeed deserve God's wrath, and repentance or turning from our futile attempts to to earn God's favor and to, to, to Christ alone is what's necessary to be saved. So Jesus' point is simply this, that anyone who tries to earn God's favor will be overburdened because it's impossible. That is a heavy burden to bear. On the other hand, the sinner comes to Christ. Christ bears his burden on the cross. The way to eternal life is easy for us. Jesus does all the work. We rely on that work. We surrender our lives to him, which is what it means to put on his yoke, a figure of submission to Christ's lordship, and follow him. Christ has done the saving work for us, and God has imputed Christ's saving work to us. It doesn't get any easier than that. Now, our passage this morning, and it's reference to living by faith, have to do with our new life in Christ after this conversion, after the easy part. What does life after conversion look like? Are we to believe with the modern church that it is the path of least resistance? I would say absolutely not. The converted life comes with a heavy responsibility to mature. A lot of people don't know that. go forward to be what we have become in Christ, which is perfect. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, then you've embarked on a way of progressive sanctification. That means simply that the divine act that God took to sanctify you by the blood of Christ and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit has set you now on a road to righteousness. You have A firm desire now to love Christ. And God has outfitted you at the moment of conversion. He has equipped you with all that is necessary to be like him. This is the way of salvation. The way in salvation. A steady climb toward the upward call of God, which we'll reach when we see Christ face to face in glory. There's also maintenance required on our part. We not only are responsible and mature, but we have to maintain our godly status. We keep up our spiritual disciplines, prayer, asking God for wisdom, applying his truth, working hard to put off the characteristics and habits of our old ungodly and unconverted life and replace them, put on in their place characteristics and habits of of our new life in Christ, radically amputating those things in our lives that might tempt us to sin so that we might strive to never sin the same sin over again, renewing our minds. This is work. There's a lot of spiritual sweat in this process. But Because of the many distorted faces of Christianity that exist in our country that have only created or catered, rather, to this season of apostasy and compromise that we're experiencing, as I've been arguing now for a few years, it's important to get an accurate portrait of the way of righteousness, the way of salvation from the Bible. How does the New Testament portray God's way for his elect? How? What is the portrait? Well, I scoured the New Testament past couple of weeks and i have taken a cross section of passages from the many it provides of the por- portrait of the n- of the way of faith one essential characteristic in this portrait is living in light of the fulfillment of god's promise of future blessing it's all over the place and of course the writer of hebrews emphasizes this in chapter 11 It's as if the writers of the epistles could not talk about living God's way without also mentioning, in the very same breath, anticipating glory. And this longing for heaven becomes one of the strongest motivations for living God's way in the manner that he has called us to live it. Here, then, is an ever-so-New Testament portrait of the way of righteousness. Are you ready? ever so brief. Christians, or Christianity rather, was first called the way before Jesus' disciples were called Christians. And it's no doubt because it demonstrated a way of living that was based on God's covenant promises, the new covenant to be exact. Let me get more specific. Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 9. In verses 24 to 27, he talks, about, he talks about Christianity, or the way of God, as a spiritual race that Christians run. This is not a relaxing, sightseeing jaunt, but an all-out endurance run toward a goal which is glory. We run for our inheritance. Paul is clear that anticipating a our our reward is a huge motivating factor in the way that we run. He says in verse 24, run in such a way that you win the prize. Now the issue here is not whether we will win. We have won already in Christ. We have the inheritance, the prize waiting for us. Rather, the issue is that the way we run, we should run this race the way athletes do who win. And that way is aggressively and tirelessly and speedy with endurance and determination. He adds in verse 25, exercise self-control. And he gives an example of what he means by this from his own life in verse 26. He says, I run in such a way not as to run aimlessly. God's way is all about knowing his will for us at all times and doing it. We run very purposefully. The only way to live the Christian life is by the light of God's revelation showing us the way. Obeying his word is the wisest way to live, the most productive way to live, the surest way to bring honor to God and the only way to invest wisely in the kingdom. He continues with another figure. He says, I box in such a way as avoid hitting the air. Smart fighter makes every punch count, landing them on his target every time. Again, the idea is living God's way with precision. And in verse 27, God's way demands that we strictly discipline our body and make it our slave. I like this part. Paul's reference to body is the flesh, with all its appetites. Our flesh houses all five of our senses that produce an array of feelings in us. As physical beings, God created us to enjoy the physical creation around us. And there are many pleasantries in God's creation that appeal to our physical senses and produce wonderful feelings and and desires in us. But in a fallen world, those things that stimulate our senses are not all good and proper and holy. And because our flesh is still the last part of us to be redeemed, it can produce certain feelings in us that can lead us to lusts and ungodly wants, And desires. So we have to be in control of our senses and the stimuli that we subject them to. Paul was strict with himself in this area, disciplined to keep his focus on godly stimuli, to keep himself from drifting. He says, So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We don't have a whole lot of time to go into this idea of disqualification, Uh, the Greek word really means to flunk the test, and that leads me to conclude against the popular view that Paul's not talking about being disqualified from a particular ministry as he is talking about failing the test of faith. In other words, if he couldn't care less about being conscientious in God's way, putting to death ungodly lust, being precise about God's will, disciplining himself to stay obedient, well, then there's no good reason for him to think that he was a Christian. He would have been a pretender, drifting away from orthodoxy, from a sincere faith, and eventually revealing himself to be an apostate. It's the same idea that the writer of Hebrews has in chapter 6. Paul uses the metaphor of a long-distance runner in other places as well. And the manner in which we're to run, according to Paul, is very noteworthy. Again, the portrait. Philippians 3.14, he says, run zealously. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. The pressing on here means to pursue something zealously. Tenaciously, always being at it, never letting up. And in verses 20 and 21, he gives the motivation for such a zealous advancement. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The redeemed life is a fast-paced, zealous endurance run toward our heavenly home because that's where we hold our citizenship. It's where the Lord will return from to collect us and bring us back, where he will transform our fleshly bodies into glorified ones. In Colossians 2.18, Paul says to run circumspectly. Take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize, The dangers along the way of the redeemed life are false teachers, apostates, and yes, even severely compromised leaders of the church that we once respected. Their deceptive doctrine will mislead you. So as we run, we need to run guardedly, carefully, cautiously, with awareness so that we will not be hindered or slowed down or rerouted by these dangers. And notice, Paul finishes his thought with an emphasis on the better country. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Is that not motivation enough to walk or run, I should say, circumspectly? Let the promise of being with Christ in glory cause you to run circumspectly then so that you will not be deceived. According to 1 Timothy 6.11, run wisely, not foolishly. Paul says, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Avoiding what tempts us and pursuing what edifies us is what it means to fight the good fight. And once again, our motivation for a wise pursuit is heaven itself. See the, the connection in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Oh, this is such a clear reference to living now what we know will be true of us in heaven someday. That's what he means by taking hold of eternal life. As warriors, as champions of righteousness, we champion God's cause in our lives by enjoying now the eternal life reserved for us. How do we do that? We pursue a kingdom living that we will fully enjoy in glory. We live by kingdom principles now. Our full redemption there is our motivation to live it as much as possible here. As verse 14 says, keeping the commandment without fault or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Realize what you've become, what's been entrusted to you, and what's waiting for you by grabbing for it, by reaching for it. So live your life as you know you will live it in heaven, because someday you will be there for eternity living it that way. According to 2 Timothy 2, Paul uses three metaphors to talk about God's way. In verse 3, we're soldiers, so running becomes fighting. How do we fight? Tenaciously. Verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Good soldiers never give up the fight, no matter how heated the battle becomes for them. They are tenacious. They are focused. Look at verse 4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of every day so that he may please the one who enlisted him. Christians stay focused on heavenly concerns, not worldly ones. They're concerned about fulfilling their orders from their lord and commander. Paul goes on to or goes back, rather, to the Christian as athlete in verse 5, and he says that we are to run honestly, honestly. He says, and if someone likewise competes as an athlete, he is not crowned as victor unless he competes according to the rules. In the same way, the spiritual athlete will finish well and receive his reward because he obeyed the rule of God, and that, of course, is Scripture. Finally, in verse 6, Paul likens Christians to a farmer, and he says that we are to farm expectantly. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. God's way may be laborious, casting seed, planting seed, watering seed, but if we're faithful to the process, we will see a harvest we will surely receive the fruits of our labor, some of which will be immediate in this life, but certainly all of it in heaven. Which is the last thought that he leaves us with in verse 10. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. If you know Paul's life and what he went through to fulfill his calling, you know that it was no small matter for him to say that he endured all things for the sake of the elect. His ministry to them was fraught with hardship and suffering and persecution and sleepless nights and a whole host of other trials. Just read 2 Corinthians 11 when you have a chance and you'll see. But his sights were on the better country which actually made the hardship seem to him light and momentary, preaching an eternal weight of glory. Heaven, the better country, the prize, our inheritance. It's the motivation for living God's way. And we need that motivation because God's way is so strenuous. The word of our Lord in Revelation 2.10 confirms this when he characterizes the redeemed life as one of suffering. And in the same breath, he motivates us to suffer through with glory in mind. Here's what he says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you a crown of Even suffering to death is worth it for the crown of life. The motivation for living the redeemed life that is so fraught with trials and suffering is the crown of life. Remember we've said already now, several weeks, no crown without the cross. No one understood that better than Peter. His words to, uh, or, or, or better than Paul rather, his words to Timothy and the last words that, we'll, that we ever hear from the apostle before his death are in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 8. What does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, with which, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Is there any question that Paul was a spiritual warrior who fought the fight and ran the course well? And he fought and ran and kept his devotion to Christ alive and ever deepening because he eagerly anticipated his crown, the prize, eternal life. He grabbed hold of it. And he lived it. I'll bring our brief portrait of the redeemed life to an end with 1 Peter 4. In verses 12 to 13, which was our scripture reading for this morning, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. Live the redeemed life in a biblically informed way, Peter says. Expect fiery ordeals. That's the norm, in spite of what the church growth movement says. If Jesus endured them, would not his disciples also endure them? But if, as Jesus also, would take his place in glory, so will we. And we will be overjoyed when that happens. Therefore, because that is true, Peter says, start rejoicing now in the midst of all the difficulty. We could certainly fill this out, but... We've said enough, I think, to get a clear portrait of the redeemed life, the way of God, which is so very different from the modern church's idea. Far from a path of least resistance, God's way is aggressive and warlike. Christians themselves were accused of upsetting the whole world. Do you remember that? Book of Acts. Upsetting the whole world. And we're not surprised. They are more than conquerors. That means that they fight a spiritual battle, not a physical one against people, of course, but they fight nevertheless. They fight off temptation from the world system and from their own flesh. They kill ungodly lusts. They war against the God of this world. They wear armor. They wield weapons of warfare. The Bible is their sword. They destroy ideological fortresses and take every satanic thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The Christian is a militant, Or the Christian life, the Christian walk, is a militant march of the warrior who is armed for battle and ready to die in service for Christ. That's the portrait. The same militant posture is implied in some of the less common metaphors that the New Testament writers use to describe the believer. We've we've mentioned all of them, the long-distance runner, He needs to take responsibility to stay disciplined and trained hard to win. And so does the boxer. And the farmer works arduously from the time he gets up with the rooster until he goes to bed. All three fight against weariness and the temptations to cut corners. Skip important steps in their spiritual regimen and settle for anything less than the best. They struggle with that. And you should because when you struggle, it means you're alive. The Israelites, the way of God was through the sea. It was their only hope, but it required faith in God's promise of future blessing. It's the same for Christians today. All of God's people, God's way for us is also through the sea. The redeemed life is often unimaginably difficult and ominous. And all the more against the backdrop of our secular surroundings. It's the way of righteousness. It is unpopular, narrow, fraught with all kinds of danger. Is the Christian life the most taxing, dangerous life there is? Only if you live it obediently. John Bunyan saw it the same way and addressed it in his classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. While marching on God's way, Christian encounters Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And after Mr. Worldly Wiseman learned that Evangelist had directed Christian to travel God's way to the celestial city to rid himself of his burden, he says, quote, I most certainly condemn him for his advice, for there is not a more dangerous and troublesome way ahead in all the world than that into which he has directed you. And you will prove this to be so if you submit to his guidance Indeed, you appear to have experienced some of this already. I notice dirt on you that surely comes from the slough of despond. And yet the slough of despond is but the beginning of your sorrows, even as other pilgrims experience along the same way. Listen to me, since I am older than you. As you proceed along the way ahead, you're likely to experience wearisomeness and painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in a word, death. And what else? These things are certainly true since they have been confirmed by the testimony of many pilgrims. So why should a man so carelessly place himself in danger by paying attention to the advice of a stranger. The advice comes from Scripture. The way is as he has described. And the reason it is worth it is because it dead ends into glory. We've argued from Hebrews 11.29 that faith perseveres in God's way no matter how impossible it may seem. This is certainly a biblical truth, and the value of understanding and embracing it is at the very least that we not become lax in our pursuit of holiness. You want to take the easy way out, and you belong to God? I will say this because He loves you, He will make that difficult with divine discipline and bring you back on the road that is narrow, that is tough. But because it's tough, we don't let our guard down, we don't get lazy. We don't think that we can coast our way to heaven or be sidetracked by the latest fad that has deceived the church. Just to reiterate, we are not saying that the redeemed life is not the best life there is. It is. There's nothing better than being reconciled to God. It is God's gift to us. Neither are we saying that it is not the most joyous way. It has to be if it leads to joy inexpressible. And that thought maintains our deep and abiding joy now. Neither are we saying that it is not the most rewarding. Again, it leads to a great inheritance which motivates us to invest now and there's no greater reward than growing closer to our lord and becoming like him in the midst of our pilgrimage what we are saying is that it is a narrow road that runs in the opposite direction right down the middle of the broad road to destruction and it's most it is the most difficult way for christians These superlatives of God's way don't deny that it is the most difficult, even at times seemingly impossible. Rather, they are characteristics of it. And I think we all know that something that produces such superlative experiences has got to be rigorous and worth it. It is. Make sure you're on it and that you're running well and that you're reaching for the goal.